In recent weeks here, we've been studying Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God and our responsibilities as, as citizens of that kingdom to do likewise, to do what Jesus did in an effort to fulfill the commission that he gave to us to make other disciples. This morning, we're going to study a passage of Scripture, John chapter 4. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4, where we're going to see some principles that are necessary if we're to be disciple makers. And we're going to see Jesus do them in a specific order. And I don't want to suggest to you that this is a pattern that every disciple making opportunity has to, has to follow, but it certainly has elements of disciple making in it that we must use if we indeed are going to follow Jesus' model and be disciple makers ourselves. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. So Jesus has been in Jerusalem He's been sharing this news that the kingdom of God has come, calling people to repent and be citizens of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees are alarmed by this, but it's not time yet for Jesus to undertake a, a confrontation with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. And so Jesus is not running from them. It's, it's simply not time yet. So he leaves Jerusalem. He leaves the area of Judea. And he returns to Galilee, where most of his ministry takes place. And he had to pass through Samaria. He, you could travel around Samaria, which many did, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But Jesus chose to take a more direct path and go straight through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is an area that has deep roots in the the history of the nation of Israel. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It was about, about noontime. What I want you to see first as we look at this passage of Scripture is that, that Jesus purposefully went to places where the gospel was not. And admittedly, at this point, virtually everywhere Jesus goes was someplace where the gospel of the kingdom of God had not yet been preached. But in going to Samaria, he went into a territory that was not a welcome place for a Jewish man, certainly not one descended from the line of King David, the tribe of Judah. If you remember back in the history of the nation of Israel, the, the nation actually had divided after the rule of King Solomon. It was, a, it was a united nation during the reign of Saul, the first king, and then David reigned, and then Solomon reigned. And after the reign of King Solomon, as great and glorious and grand as it was, there was division that arose within the nation. And the ten northern tribes rejected Solomon's sons Rehoboam as their king. They didn't want him to rule them. They selected another individual by the name of Jeroboam to rule them. They no longer recognized Jerusalem as their capital. They designated a city by the name of Samaria to be their capital. And eventually, the entire area of the northern 
kingdom, sometimes referred to as the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah that retained the capital of Jerusalem. Sometimes that northern kingdom was referred to as Samaria, which was the capital city, to ensure that the people would no longer go to Jerusalem to worship. Jeroboam established alternate worship sites in the cities of Bethel in the southern part of the northern kingdom and Dan in the northern part of that kingdom. Jeroboam opened the priesthood to people outside the Levitical tribe of Levi. In the nation of Israel, originally in the law, the Levites were the tribe from which the priest and the religious leaders came from. But Jeroboam said, eh, no, anybody can be a, can be a priest. if they're, they're qualified by other qualifications, but being a Levite was not one of them. And he established alternate festival days to differentiate the worship of the northern nation of Israel or Samaria from the southern nation of Judah. The northern nation eventually went into exile during the reign of King Shalmaneser of Assyria. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 17, chapter 17, 2 Kings verse 24. It says, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria, and they lived in its cities. So he took a large number, the corpus of people, maybe the majority of the population of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he took them into exile into Assyria. And in their place, he brought in people from all of these other nations, and they took up residence in the northern kingdom. And in verse 29 in 2 Kings 17, it says, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived, the men of Babylon made succoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children. They actually sacrificed their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them at the shrines of the high places. And so they feared the Lord but also their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried out. And so you see these people that the Assyrians, that King Shalmaneser imported into this northern kingdom, they brought all their own gods with them, and then they included the God of the Israelites in that. So their pantheon of gods is huge, including Yahweh. Eventually, over the course of time, historically, we know that descendants of those Israelites that went into exile they returned to the land of Samaria. And many of them intermarried with these people from other nations that had been settled in Samaria. And so you see the descendants of the Israelites, these people from these 10 northern tribes that made up this new nation that was governed by Jeroboam after the reign of Solomon, the descendants of these Israelites still acknowledged Yahweh as God. That had been handed down. They had that 
in common with the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was still the capital. But their understanding of God and their worship of God was so very different from the Jews of Jerusalem. And the Jews of Jerusalem completely rejected the people of Samaria as worshipers of God. And there was a deep prejudice towards the Samaritans on the part of the Jews and a deep hatred of the Jews on the part of the Samaritans because the Samaritans just absolutely refused to accept them on any level despite bloodlines that existed between them. The Jews would travel great distances around Samaria to avoid interaction with the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. But Jesus breaks completely with the habit of his countrymen, and he travels right through the heart of Samaria. Jesus took the gospel of the kingdom of God to a place it was very unlikely to go unless he personally took it there. And this was an example to his disciples. Jesus was not exclusive when it came to the announcement that the kingdom of God had come. And it's an example to us today. We do not discriminate in sharing the good news that the king has come. Indeed, we have a responsibility to ensure that the good news is shared in places where it may not be welcome, where it may be difficult to go and take it. I want to suggest to you that as one that's taking the gospel, when we look sociopolitically in our world today, as she goes into the Middle East, as she goes particularly to the country that she goes to, she's dealing with a refugee population there. She's going into a place where many people have never heard of Jesus. They have no desire to hear of Jesus, not a popular subject to take into many circles in that area of the world. But if somebody doesn't take it there, it won't be heard there. Is one that's doing precisely what Jesus did as he goes into Samaria taking the gospel to a place where it's not likely to go unless someone takes it there. We, we are a part of this as we support the national missionaries of these countries where persecution is taking place. We do it through the support of missionaries. In Indonesia, it's a place that has the largest Muslim population of any country in the world. We do it by way of our support of in Turkey and others whom God has called to difficult places, but we also recognize that there are places here where we live that, that where, where the people may not be inclined to receive the good news of Jesus, places where the people aren't, aren't, aren't expecting to be confronted by the gospel, the, the why, the places where I train, LA Fitness and the YMCA, notwithstanding its Christian origins, is not a place where people are anticipating being confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going there to work out. And I've gone there with that mindset on many occasions. They're typically not looking for life-changing conversation in those places where you work may be another one of those places. In fact, there may be work rules that prohibit you from speaking about Jesus in a way that is perceived to be evangelizing those around you. Or, or school, if you're a student, may be another place, a place where people prefer lighter, more superficial conversation, not wanting to talk about these 
these more important eternal kinds of, of things, a, a place where, where it's just not expected. But the commission Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 to make disciples is predicated by our going. And the going, as you look at the original language, implies that we're conscious of our purpose wherever we go, that in the process of our going, whether the gospel is welcome in a, in a given place or not, that we're conscious of opportunities God would place in front of us to share the gospels. We make disciples in the process of our going. So wherever we go, especially places where conversations regarding Jesus are unlikely to occur, unless we're willing to engage those conversations, we go to those places intentionally with that idea in mind. We're here for a reason. It's as Jesus was sitting beside the well in verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Not only did Jews avoid Samaritans at all costs, Jewish men did not speak publicly with women with whom they had no relationship. They didn't, typically, they didn't even speak to women in public. They wouldn't even speak to their own wives in public. And they certainly would not engage in conversation publicly or privately with a Samaritan woman. But Jesus purposefully spoke with those others would not speak with. The gospel of the kingdom was good news for everyone. Kingdom citizenship was available to everyone. Relationship with God as a child of God was possible to all who would receive Jesus as king, to all who believed in him as Messiah. And Jesus risked scandal by way of those with whom he associated himself in order to get that message out. Lepers were considered in the first century cursed by God. They were avoided at all costs. You had nothing to do with lepers yet. In Matthew 8, 2, it says a man with leprosy came and he knelt before Jesus and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man and he said, I'm willing, be clean. And this is immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And I can imagine what those who were with Jesus on that, that occasion, thought as he was reaching out his hand to touch the leper, what is he doing? What is, he's he's going to touch the leper. What, what is he doing? And then by the touch of his hand, the leper was made clean. And, and what they saw was that the kingdom of God was open. The kingdom of heaven was open to everyone even the leper, even the one who everyone knew was cursed by God, so obvious was their curse. They wore it upon them. The lesions on their skin spoke to the curse of God. And yet even that one, God was opening the kingdom to. In Luke 7, as Jesus dines at the home of one of the Pharisees, a woman with a poor reputation in the community approached him, and she washed his feet with tears of gratitude to Jesus that she shed. She'd heard the good news that Jesus proclaimed. She was grateful for the message of acceptance that she'd heard. The Pharisee was critical of Jesus as he 
observe this take place. He was astonished that Jesus would even allow the woman to touch him. But, but Jesus exalted her actions. He pointed out her actions. He contrasted them with the way that the Pharisee had treated him so shabbily when he'd come into his house without even offering to have his feet washed. And yet this woman had washed his feet with her tears. He exalted her and her actions, receiving her gift of worship and publicly announcing that her sins, however great they may have been in the community, however they had impacted her reputation, her sin was forgiven. For some were highly conscious of those with whom they associated, and many still are today. Jesus did not discriminate. The gospel he preached was good news for anyone who would receive. Tax collectors were hated because they were in league with the Roman government. They enriched themselves at the expense of their countrymen. But Jesus called a tax collector, Matthew, or Levi, as he was known to be one of his 12 disciples. In Luke chapter 5, verse 29, it says, After Levi chose to follow Jesus, he hosted a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And there were a large number of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you associate with this riffraff? Jesus was unconcerned about his reputation in the eyes of the religious leaders. It was more important to Jesus that the tax collectors and the other sinners knew of the good news, that the kingdom had come. Sharing the good news with everyone was far more important to Jesus than the opinions of the self-righteous. Jesus went where the gospel was not. Jesus shared with those who others would avoid. The Samaritan woman, knowing that Jesus risked reputation by interaction with her, asked him, what are you doing talking to me? Why would you ask me, a Samaritan woman, a Jewish man, you're asking me for a drink of water? And in John 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater? Then our father, then Jacob, he gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water, the water from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come down here to draw water. Jesus purposefully spoke of spiritual issues. And you may think to yourself, well, of course he did. He was Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Jesus spoke about spiritual things. It's just who he was. And that's certainly true enough. But Jesus did what he did and said what he said because he had an acute awareness of why he was here. 
Jesus had a similar conversation with some Jews in John chapter 6, verse 28, where they asked Jesus, what must, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus responded, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. And they asked him, okay, you want us to believe in you. What sign will you give us? Moses gave us a sign in the desert. God sent manna in the desert. He, he gave bread from heaven to eat. And in verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me, and, and still you choose not to believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And you get this in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He said something very similar in John 8, 48. I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. He said it again in John 12, 49. I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And so again, we've we have this tendency, even as Christians, to think, well, of course, Jesus spoke to spiritual issues, and of course, he understood why he was here, and of course, he said what God told him to say. But do you understand why you are here any less than Jesus understood why he was here? Is there some lack is there some gap, some absence in your understanding of why you're here over against Jesus' understanding of why he's here? It should be clear from the things that we've been studying. It should be clear to you from a very straightforward reading of the text. You exist to show forth the glory of God. Remember Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5.21 last week, Jesus became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And why would God have us become the righteousness of God? But that we would show forth to the world the righteousness of God, God that the world would see the righteousness of God. Your tongue has been given to you that you would speak of the greatness of God. Your mind has been given to you to align with the thoughts of God guided by the Spirit of God that was given you when you chose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is, unless you do not belong to Christ, unless you've not received the Spirit of God, in which case, remember Paul's words from last week, Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Hey, the Spirit is key 
in all of this. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then none of this means much of anything to you. But if you have the Spirit of God, this all should resonate deeply within you. Jesus had an acute awareness of what he was here for and what it was he was supposed to be doing, what the Father sent him to do. Let me be clear with you. Jesus was and is one with the Father eternally. Jesus is part of the triune Godhead that includes the Holy Spirit of God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit because it was His Spirit. We are not one with the Father eternally from time, eternal past. We're not one with the Father in the same way that Jesus is one with the Father. We're not little gods. We're not little Jesuses as some people preach. But we are called to be one with the Father. This was the prayer of Jesus in John 17 and verse 20. This is the night before he's crucified. I pray not only for these, for these 12 with me, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. May they be one with us so that the world would see me, more of me, more of my righteousness going forward. Verse 22, I've given them the glory you've given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them, you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is the abiding of John 15 in verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, there's a oneness that Scripture calls us to. We're not one with the Father as Jesus was one with the Father, but we are one with Jesus and we are one with the Father as we allow the Holy Spirit to control in our lives. Jesus engaged conversation naturally. Just asking for a drink of water, something that was within the power of the Samaritan woman to, to give him something that was within her power to do. But at the first opportunity, he shifted the conversation to the gift of God, to water that satisfies an eternal life. Jesus' spirit and the Father's spirit were, were one and the same at this point. Words and actions came naturally because he was one with the Father. This oneness with the Father it escapes us. Part of our problem is, is that we don't spend enough time with God the Father to align with Him spiritually. We find ourselves in conversations with lost people, and it never occurs to us to address spiritual issues. Without a consciousness of our oneness with God, a consciousness of oneness with Jesus and His mission a consciousness of oneness with the Spirit of God who's, who's controlling in our lives, all we are left with is, is the focus of, 
self-interest. And as I, as I contemplated this, the preparation, as I thought, this is, this is how I become so easily irritated with others in private and in public without an awareness of the Spirit of God, one with whom I am, I am one, one with the Father, one with Christ. I remain focused on my own interest. I want everyone and every situation and circumstance to conform to what meets and serves my needs and wants. And I become vocal about it, and I can become angry about it. Some of you think, gosh, why are you so angry? And you're just passively aggressive. You'd never raise your voice. You become petulant and pout when you don't get your way. At least people know when I'm not getting my way. But whatever our response, when we go there, we miss so many opportunities to turn people to Jesus, to turn them towards the good news. And we miss those things because we're not one with Christ. We're not one with the Spirit. Ultimately, one with the Father as Jesus was. We're not there. We're missing out on it without an awareness of our oneness. We spend all of our resources. We spend our time, our energy, our effort, our money, our emotions. We spend it all, all of ourselves on ourselves instead of giving it to Jesus and being spent by him. We're not sensitive to the opportunities because we're not aware of this oneness as Jesus was. And when we are aware of opportunities on occasions, sometimes self-consciousness overrides and prevents us from saying anything. We don't want others to think we're Jesus freaks or religious fanatics. But listen, we don't need to force conversations in directions they will not go. We need simply to be sensitive to the Spirit of God, aware of that oneness with the Father, willing to address spiritual issues as the opportunity arises. Jesus did that. And then Jesus addressed a personal social issue that attributed to the, to the woman's spiritual emptiness. In John chapter 4, verse 16, he said to the woman, go call your husband and then, and then come back. Go call your husband and then we'll, we'll proceed with this conversation further. And she said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you've correctly said, I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Jesus purposefully addressed personal issues. He didn't shy away from issues that many people would like to remain off limits. The woman had failed to find satisfaction in a relationship with five husbands, and now she was living with a sixth man content to do that without benefit of marriage, and who could blame her, man? Five marriages, and it hadn't worked yet. We live in times that are not un uncommon as, as the first century. Multiple marriages and people living together without benefit of marriage, and what's that all about except I need someone else to make me happy, and I, I need you to make me happy. And if you can't do that, I'll go find somebody else that will make me happy. Looking for someone else or something else to make us happy. Marriage is commitment. Marriage requires sacrifice. Marriage means loving others, oftentimes when no love is being given in return. Marriage is difficult, but five marriages and subsequent divorces and then living with a sixth man, Jesus turns the conversation and, and, and speaks of God's gift 
of eternal life and water that satisfies. And when the woman asks, where can I get some of this water? I'd like this water. Jesus says, where's your husband? Go get your husband and let's talk about this as a family. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've been looking for this answer. You've been looking for this water in all of the wrong places. The way that you've been living your life has been undermining and undercutting you ever finding this water. Jesus addresses head-on lifestyle choice that's self-defeating, seeking to find fullness in earthly relationships, the things that the world has to offer. Let me tell you where else you'll not find answers. People are looking for them. They'll never find them in relationships for which they're they're not prepared. Young people becoming involved with, with boyfriends and girlfriends before they're prepared, engaging sexually long before it's time, before marriage or engaging intimately. Often older people do this with, with someone that they barely even know, but wanting that closeness, thinking somehow that's going to fulfill them, or eliminating the life in your womb that has arrived in an inconvenient or an unwanted moment in life, or by embracing an an affection for which God did not create you by giving into the idea that you're Identity can be found in some sexual expression or gender identity, something other than the way that God graciously made you by altering your body to conform to such an outrageous idea, by surrendering to your addictions, compulsions to drink or drug or spend or eat or game or watch or or whatever it may be. People are struggling with these things, and they say they want the water, and they say they want the bread of life, and And sometimes it's necessary as relationship is established with people, and this typically isn't going to happen sitting by the well with somebody in the first brush at conversation, but part of disciple-making is when given the opportunity speaking to these issues and, and asking people, have you found satisfaction by way of these things? When we're aware of the struggles of people, we do them no favors if we choose to avoid speaking of the issues because they're sensitive issues. And ones most people want to avoid. Jesus confronted the issues head on. Verse 19, the woman replied, how do you reply to that? You know, you got five husbands and now you're living with a guy that's not your husband. Don't want to talk about that. Sir, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Look at the direction we go in. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She wants to talk about worship now. Yet you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. I mean, their worship was all upside down. Historically, we see that. Jesus said, we worship as Jews what we do know because salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and is now here. This is, again, the kingdom of God has arrived. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. My guess is is the Samaritan woman was stunned by Jesus' insight into her marital situation. She tries to turn the conversation back to a religious conversation around the differences 
between the worship of the Jews and the worship of the Samaritans. The worship of the Jews was still at the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, and it was on Mount Moriah, was on a specific mount. The Samaritans had previously worshipped at a temple on Mount Gerizim, a temple that had been destroyed before the time of Jesus. But that place on Mount Gerizim was still considered a holy place, as Jews still consider the Temple Mount a holy place today, despite the fact there's no temple there. It was a place, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans still worship. She says, we worship here on Gerizim. You guys say the right place to worship is in Jerusalem. The woman offers controversy. You know, she wants to throw this, this is debate this, let's talk about this. What's the correct mountain on which to worship is a substitute subject in place of her living arrangements. But Jesus purposefully returns to the spiritual conversation. He's not content, despite the fact she's unwilling to take up the spiritual conversation at this point, He's not content to just let it go and say, oh, well, I guess she doesn't want to talk about it. God's not concerned with the location of worship. He's concerned with the spiritual condition of worship. God is spirit, and he longs for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. He calls the woman back to understand it's not where you worship. It's the condition of the heart when you worship. Still, the woman tries to evade the truth of what Jesus says. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. He'll he'll settle all the controversies. He'll clear up all the ambiguities. And in verse 26, Jesus told her, I am he. I am the Messiah. The one speaking to you is this Messiah of whom you speak. In verse 27, the disciples return. They they're shocked to find Jesus speaking, talking to this Samaritan woman. They, they brought back food for Jesus to eat. And as you read those verses, Jesus spoke to them of true nourishment. He rejected their food. They didn't understand. He said his true nourishment was from doing the will of the Father. Meanwhile, though, the, the woman returned to town, to Sychar. Something within her had changed. Something Jesus said had clicked. The Holy Spirit of God had opened her eyes to spiritual truth that she had not as yet seen. And she returned to Sychar and she shared with those there who would listen to her of her encounter with Jesus. And look at verse 39. It says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified to them. She didn't just go back and say, man, let me tell you about this really odd situation. This guy that had, he had knowledge. It's like he's a you know, fortune teller or something. He knew about me things that no one had ever. She goes back and she's telling about this one that claimed to be the Messiah. He says he's the Messiah. And listen, I believe that he is. He knew things about me. He understands. He called me to the truth of God's word in a way. He gave me a clarity that I have not ever had before. He told me everything I ever did. Therefore, in verse 40, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there with them two days, and many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. 
Jesus went where others avoided going. He spoke to ones whom others would not even give the time of day. He directed his conversations and interactions with this woman and with others towards spiritual matters. He understood why he was here, and he didn't shy away from difficult social and personal kinds of issues. He refused to be deterred in focusing on the gospel, regardless of what direction someone tried to take the conversation is. His focus was the the good news that the Messiah had arrived, that the kingdom of God had come, and that it was open, that citizenship was available for all of those that would align themselves with he, the Messiah, would be followers of God through Jesus Christ. He said, you can drink of the living water. And when he said it to this woman, she went and shared with others. And the others she shared with believed, and they came, and they drank of the living water. This is why we're here. This is why we're here. This is what our oneness with Christ through his Holy Spirit informs us. When we're walking in the strength and the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we're one with the Father, these things are clear to us. But when we walk without an awareness of that oneness, we we walk our lives, we walk this world, we live and act and speak in very self-centered ways. We forget why we're here. God calls us to this oneness unless, unless you do not have the Spirit of God, in which case you don't belong to Christ. You don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the only way that oneness can be achieved because it is God's Spirit within that leads us to walk in the oneness. You stand, please.